Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Emily Gao, director of the DeVos Center on Religion and Civil Society, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation. I ask that all of you please silence your cell phones before we get started. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments over the fate of the Peace Cross in Bladensburg, Maryland. But the case represents far more than just one symbol in our nation's landscape. This case concerns both America's heritage and our future identity. We are neither an irreligious people, nor are we all followers of one religion. Instead, we are a people who follow many different religions. Since the founding, the Constitution has made it possible for all Americans to openly display our beliefs in the public square, from our official motto in God We Trust, to our oaths of office, to national holidays, to symbols like the Jewish menorah, the Muslim crescent moon, or the Native American totem pole. The Peace Cross is a structure made out of ordinary materials, wood and stone, and metal, but it has extraordinary significance. It commemorates the service and the sacrifice of 49 American soldiers who gave their lives in World War I. It has dual significance, both as a Christian and a universal symbol of death and heroism. Today, our keynote address will be given by a member of Congress whose heroism on a baseball field in the summer of 2017 made him a national model of strength in the face of evil. Representative Steve Scalise had a remarkable recovery from being shot and critically wounded, to which he credited the prayers of the American people. Today, he is in his 11th year in the House of Representatives, representing the 1st Congressional District of Louisiana. He also serves as the House Republican Whip, the second highest position in House Republican leadership. Congressman Scalise is known for his strong defense of the Constitution, his conservative values, and his ability to work with both Democrats and Republicans. Congressman Scalise was also the House lead for a bipartisan coalition of 84 senators and congressmen who filed an amicus brief in the case that we heard yesterday. They called upon the Supreme Court to preserve the, quote, unbroken history of official acknowledgement by all three branches of government of the role of religion in American life, close quote. Please join me in welcoming Congressman Scalise. Welcome, everybody, and uh, thank you for having me back here at the Heritage Foundation. Appreciate the work that you do to stand up for uh, the true conservative 
principles that this country was founded upon. And uh, as in so many times, we see attacks on those founding principles. And yesterday was a clear example at the Supreme Court of one of those fundamental beliefs uh, that we are fighting to defend. And when we look at this case, uh, the case of the American Legion versus the American Humanist Association, uh, there's a lot more at stake than that one symbol in Bladensburg, but clearly uh, that's where uh, they're going to try to chip away at so many other religious symbols. And I think it gets to the, the core of the understanding of what our country was founded upon. We were a nation founded under a deep belief in God. In fact, I just came from the House chamber, and right above the beautiful flag uh, that stands on the speaker's rostrum are the words, in God we trust. It's right there. When you look around the Capitol chamber, they have profiles of so many of the great lawmakers throughout our time. Thomas Jefferson's there, Mason for his rules. But the ultimate lawmaker that's recognized, only one that has a full bust, not a profile, is Moses, who wrote the Ten Commandments. It's right there in the House chamber. Now, maybe they're going to go after that after I say this. Uh, and, they, and believe me, they've challenged our ability to open House proceedings with prayer. And luckily, that's been upheld. We have a House chaplain who opens our House in prayer every day. And I appreciate the fact that we have that opportunity. But if we look at what is at stake in this case, you know, we can go back to why uh, that cross is there, why that symbol is there. It's there to recognize 49 of our heroes who died fighting in World War I, people from Maryland who were buried in various places. They were all Christians. It just so happened. And some of them fought in France and died in France and are buried there. Some of them are buried in Arlington. Some of them may be buried all around. But the people of Maryland wanted to come together and have a single place that they could all go to nearby to truly pay tribute to those 49 brave heroes. And so they put up that cross. And it stood there almost 100 years. And then along comes the Humanist Association and tries to say it in some kind of way helps establish a religion. I think it shows a deep misunderstanding of the Establishment Clause, uh, what our Constitution really does call for. We're fortunately a nation that was founded not only under a belief in God and that our powers, by the way, all of our rights as citizens don't come from lawmakers. They come from God through our lawmakers to individuals, truly given freedom to individual people here in this country. That's what the belief is upon, and it also gives us the great ability to exercise any religious beliefs we want, not to establish a single national religion like is what happened in some countries, but to make it clear that we have the freedom to express any of our religious beliefs. Now, a lot of those religious beliefs, by the way, are under attack. Our religious freedoms are under attack. Uh, I'm proud to be the lead author of a bill to repeal the Johnson Amendment, working with Jody Heiss, uh, working with James Lankford, with Congressman Mike Johnson and others, uh, to say that the IRS and other federal agencies shouldn't be able to bully and intimidate people who speak, for example, at their pulpit, uh, where sometimes their own 501c3 status is threatened by government agencies trying to coerce them from saying certain things at the pulpit. That shouldn't uh, be a threat made against people of faith, and yet it is, and we're trying to address that. Uh, so those attacks on religious freedom come all the time. And ultimately, the Supreme Court is the final arbiter. 
And so what you heard yesterday in this case were the, the arguments presented. And if you look at the arguments on our side, I feel very confident that we will prevail. But let's keep in mind that the current ruling, uh, the current law in the courts by a two-to-one ruling is that that statue has to come down, that cross has to come down if we don't get this reversed at the Supreme Court level. So that's how volatile our religious freedoms are, that a 2-1 ruling is the current law of the land saying you have to take that down. Now, if we don't get this reversed, I think you can see where this goes. The next place they're going is Arlington National Cemetery and every other cemetery across this country that recognizes and respects the individual faiths of men and women who have fallen in defense of our freedoms. And so whether you have a cross, whether you have the Star of David, Ultimately, all of that is in jeopardy. And those symbols do not establish a religion. They respect the individual religious beliefs and faith that have been expressed by people who have died. Uh, That's what is at stake. That's what the Supreme Court ultimately is going to have to decide. And so we're going to be watching very closely. But in the meantime, many of my colleagues joined with so many others asking the Supreme Court to take this case up. Uh, I joined with Senator Cruz to put together an amicus brief, and we had over 100 House and Senate members that first called on the Supreme Court to take up this case. And then once they agreed, in December, we sent another amicus brief asking them to rule with the people of Bladensburg and rule with the American Legion and say that this is not an establishment of religion, but it's an attempt and it's a many one of many exercises where our country respects everybody's religious beliefs and everybody's faith and their ability, if they want to be buried and express their own individual faith on their headstone, they ought to have that opportunity. And they've always had that opportunity. But today it's in jeopardy. And so it's important that this case comes out our way. And I think if you saw some of the, uh, the questions that were being raised, some of the justices may be recognized Uh, that maybe in Bladensburg they can try to limit the ruling to just that one symbol and still have the opportunity to go after other cemeteries like Arlington. I hope that their ruling is widespread enough to give this protection to everybody who is buried. Whatever symbol they want to have on their headstone, that should be their choice. If they want to express their religious faith on their headstone, that should be their choice and their family's choice not the government's choice whether or not it can be expressed in the place that they're buried or in a place where we respect their service to our country. That's what's at stake. And so in a final thought, as, uh, as we watch the Supreme Court deliberate, do you know in their own chamber they have the Ten Commandments displayed? And they ought to have that right, but everybody ought to have that right to express their own beliefs, not an expression of the government establishing a religion, but an expression of the government saying we respect all religious faiths. Everybody ought to have that ex- ability to exercise their religious freedom. And so as we see all of these attacks on religious freedom, I appreciate that Heritage and so many others came together uh, to stand with the American Legion and say we ought to have this great tradition that's gone on uh, at Bladensburg for almost 100 years, at Arlington Cemetery for well over 100 years, uh, to be able to respect our fallen heroes in the way that they choose to express their faith. So thank you for your support. Thanks for everything else you do 
uh, to help promote freedom all around the world and where it's under attack here in Washington. Appreciate the opportunity. <clears throat> to Representative Scalise for that great introduction to this important topic. Now we'll get into our panel discussion, looking at how the argument went at the Supreme Court yesterday, talking about the big picture of what's at stake, and how this case isn't just about crosses, uh, but it could have serious implications for my minority faiths as well. I'll keep our panelists' introductions brief so we can get to hear what they have to say rather than what I have to say about them. First up is Mike Carvin. He's a partner at Jones Day, where he focuses on constitutional litigation including the First Amendment and civil rights matters. He has argued 11 cases before the Supreme Court, including his argument yesterday on behalf of the American Legion. Before entering private practice, Mike served in the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division and Office of Legal Counsel. He's a graduate of the George Washington University Law School and Tulane University. Then we'll hear from Kelly Shackelford, who is the president and CEO of First Liberty Institute, a public interest firm dedicated to protecting religious freedom for all Americans. He has served in this role since 1997, leading First Liberty's efforts to defend religious freedom in the courts and in the public arena. Under his leadership, First Liberty's legal team has participated in a number of cases in courts across the country, including the case we're here to discuss today. And they've won 90% of their cases, so let's hope that this is another win for them. Amen. Uh, Kelly's a graduate of Baylor University and its law school. And finally, uh, we'll hear from Howard Slew. He's the founder, a co-founder and general counsel of the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty, a non-denominational organization of Jewish leaders that aims to protect the ability of all Americans to freely practice their faith. He filed an amicus brief in, in support of the Peace Cross in this case. Howard also practices law in Washington, D.C., focusing on cases raising constitutional questions. He's a graduate of Hofstra University and its law school. So with that, I'll turn it over to Mike. Thank you. Um, yeah, obviously the challenge going into yesterday's argument was um, there's a truism out there that hard cases make bad law, but I think actually easy cases can make bad law. And this was an easy case because... There's no rational basis on which you could say this World War I memorial that's been there for 94 years without complaint somehow establishes religion. The problem with that is you could have a very fact-bound, very narrow kind of opinion that says this cross is okay and we'll get to crosses and creches and the Ten Commandments and other contexts. And uh, so you could uphold it basically under three standards. One was the very fact-bound analysis which the Maryland Commission, represented by Neil Katyal, was pushing, which is basically, this cross is okay. Uh, we'll get back to you on every other cross it's on some other day. The other is the one that they occasionally use, but disregard just as frequently, which is called the lemon endorsement test, which is uh, the reason they keep rejecting application of the lemon test is because it's contrary to logic and our history. Basically, the lemon test says um, you can't do anything to endorse or advance or promote religion. 
which is a little strange since the free exercise clause, which is in the First Amendment, does nothing but endorse, advance, and promote religion. So under this theory, the free exercise clause itself is unconstitutional. And, of course, all kinds of things that, for example, in God We Trust, would be rendered unconstitutional if they faithfully applied it. So when they get in situations like that or in terms of legislative prayer, they just say, well, let's let's forget lemon. Then there's the right answer, and it's actually a standard that can be applied, which we had the advantage of, of being adopted and reinforced in this town of Greece case involving uh, city council prayer from uh, two or three years ago, which we call the coercion test, uh, which is based on the notion that, look, um, obviously the establishment clause prevents you from interfering with uh, minority religion uh, in any way or advancing the majority religion, establishing the majority religion. But what does it mean to interfere with minorities and interfere in favor of majorities? When you look at the hallmarks of establishment, when they were forming the Constitution and looking at state establishments, it meant tangible interference with religious liberty. They could either compel you to give money or support the established church, or they would discriminate against the non-established churches by prohibiting them from voting or holding public office or all, all kinds of disabilities. So what we're really talking about in terms of the Establishment Clause is some coercive interference with religious liberty. And that leaves the question of speech. Why is speech problematic? Why is speech that quote, endorses religion, how could that constitute an establishment of religion as it does under the uh, Lemon uh, test? After all, we hear political speech, we hear government speech every day with which we violently disagree. I mean, I live in the District of Columbia. I can't walk down the street without seeing government speech with which I violently disagree. But the notion that I've got some kind of veto simply because this speech offends me or with which I disagree is contrary to the basic principles of diversity and pluralism that are at the, at the heart of the First Amendment. So we said, look, it's not speech that can be an establishment. It needs to be something more tangible. Now, that said, we did have um, two litigation issues that I'll be as candid about as I can, which is um, in the cases establishing the coercion test, both the Allegheny County dissent by Justice Kennedy and, uh, and the Town of Greece decision by Justice Kennedy as a majority opinion, they did say, listen, coercion's the test. But if the government is out affirmatively proselytizing in favor of one sect over another, that, that could constitute an establishment. In my own view, that's a fairly reasonable view, right? It, it is speech, and normally speech doesn't affect anything. But if the government, for example, can't establish Catholicism as the state religion of Maryland, it would seem to be the functional equivalent if the state of Maryland was constantly sending you letters saying you should convert to Catholicism. Both are establishing uh, uh, that religion. And as we all know, the government doesn't urge you to do something without at least a veiled threat that if you don't comply with their wishes, there's going to be some negative consequences. Um, and in all candor, I was at the Levy-Weissman argument, which uh, my partner and uh, Howard's current boss uh, argued, Chuck Cooper, and they asked him, well, listen, under that theory, could you change in God we trust on the coins to in Jesus we trust? And uh, Mr. Cooper honestly said, no, that would be okay, at which point Justice Scalia said, well, now you're scaring me. And uh, so 
uh, again, the tactical issue was to sell the coercion test in the form that the president uh, informed it, which included proselytization and also the ability to answer questions like in Jesus we trust we think would constitute proselytizing, although it doesn't constitute endorsement. In terms of the argument, if you've read the media uh, account, uh, Justice Gorsuch was frankly giving me some heat on the notion that I would even include proselytizing within uh, uh, the Establishment Clause or the coercion test. And the media portrayed that as a conservative not buying my argument. But I must say, uh, I was perfectly happy to have that dialogue with Justice Gorsuch. First of all, it was the first time in my entire life I've ever been called a moderate squish who wasn't willing to go. Uh, <laughs> so it's sort of entertaining from that perspective. But, but, but more importantly, uh, let's face it, you know, the, you got to get to five. And I wanted to make sure that given the precedent and given these very difficult hypotheticals that neither just Chief Justice Roberts nor Justice Kavanaugh would be concerned about the more muscular version. So the media was portraying this as something that – a dialogue that I didn't like when actually I very much did like it. And at one point I turned to Chief Justice Roberts and said, listen, if you want to go to straight formal coercion and not include proselytizing, we're sure not going to stand in your way. So – what I'm trying to convey to you is there's three options for the court to uphold this cross when they when they vote tomorrow, right? One is this fact-bound, this, this day only, we'll know it when we see it, this cross is okay, which there seem to be not a lot of support for really from anybody on the court. Then there's the lemon test, which, again, everybody seemed to think the lemon test was completely misguided and, and should be sleeping with the fishes. And, uh, and I think that's... Uh, where they're going to go, and that essentially leaves them, hopefully, with if you want a standard, it'll be our standard, and how muscular that standard is, or if you want to drop a footnote on proselytizing, we, of course, uh, don't really care. So I think the genesis of all this, and if you sort through where the court might be going on this, I've swore I will never, ever predict how a Supreme Court case is going to come out based on argument, but it seems like at least a likely result would be to adopt the test that that the American Legion and uh, Kelly's group were uh, pushing, and, and, and we'll see what, when we get to it. Sometimes the court will go up, look into the abyss, and then, and then retreat. I can't say that won't happen here, but I'm, I think that there's at least a 50% chance that the, the more muscular uh, test, the, the clear test that we're advocating will be accepted. Um, I'll make three other points that I think were important in the argument yesterday. One is uh, the other side was making the big point, well, it's okay to say uh, non-denominational speech, uh, but here this is sectarian speech because obviously crosses are associated with Christianity. And I think I was able to convey that when you're talking about symbols, this distinction between sectarian speech and non-denominational religious speech is mythical. There's no such thing as a a non-denominational symbol. All symbols take their meaning from a particular sect, Star of David, Cross, Ten Commandments, those sorts of things. So by definition, uh, if you're saying you can't have sectarian symbols, what you're really saying is we need to purge the public square of all religious symbols, and the court has consistently said that that's not a reasonable interpretation of the Establishment Clause. The other point that Justice Breyer and, and I think Justice Kagan were sort of looking at, well, Historically, if the crosses were there for World War I, we'll let those go, but no new crosses, nothing else uh, coming forward. And um, 
I think that that might have some intuitive appeal, but it did come out at the argument and is, and I think, probably a point that Howard will, will uh, elaborate on. If you grandfather in religious symbols from a while ago, all you're grandfathering in is Christian symbols, right? So, and for example, if you wanted to put up a Star of David to commemorate the Holocaust or their Star of David's to commemorate the uh, shooting at the Pittsburgh synagogue, it would be passing strange to say, well, no, these crosses are okay, but we really don't like these new Stars of David because then you would have the Establishment Clause mandating sectarian preferences as opposed to eliminating them. And that point may or may not have penetrated yesterday's conversation, but that's the clear flaw in the, well, if it was done before 1925, it's okay. If it's done after, it's it's no good. My final point will be, this is more for lawyers than for anybody else, but our alleged co-counsel who represented the commission, Neil Katyal, uh, was clearly selling this notion that if it looks exactly like this cross, it's okay. But if if there's any change, I, I can't comment on whether it would be okay or not, uh, which is fine. Uh, that was the argument he was making. But he decided to get up in rebuttal and not only say my ar- that argument is right, but to frontally attack the argument that we and the Solicitor General were advancing, which is the one I've already articulated. This was quite interesting because it's the first time in, I think, Anglo-American jurisprudence and certainly in my memory where a lawyer has gone up and argued a position that is directly contrary to his client's interests. His client wants to have this cross upheld. The easiest way to have it upheld is obviously under our test. And so this was a lawyer telling the court, please don't do something that helps my client, at which point Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch both noticed this relatively odd phenomenon, and <laughs> Kavanaugh quite pointedly said to uh, Kat Yell, well, what if you lose under the lemon test? Should we not get the test that your client wins under? At which point, it was almost Jackie Gleason-like, Kat Yell's response was, hamana, hamana, hamana. And, uh, <laughs> and, and literally, the courtroom kind of erupted in laughter. And at that point, Kat Yell said, well, maybe you'll have to change the lemon test. But um, so that was an interesting effort by a liberal lawyer to uh, try and defeat uh, what was, A, the correct uh, text and history answer, but also to abandon his client's interest in it in favor of his own ideological agenda. And I think the justices noted that. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Kelly? Um, I won't talk as much about the case, I, and we can do that in Q&A. I thought I would go back to some basics, which is just the whole jurisprudence here with the lemon test and what's been happening under the Establishment Clause. And uh, it's it's problematic and it's actually embarrassing, I think. And I think it's embarrassing to the court. And I don't say that just as an outsider. I mean, they say it's embarrassing, right? You've got Scalia writing the concurrence that's probably one of the most enjoyable concurrences ever uh, about the late night ghoul that uh, shuffles in its grade, uh, grave and and that how they they call it out to to scare the cool school children in that case and and then they uh, they leave it in its grave so they bring it out when they want to strike something down they bring the lemon test out and he says we've stabbed a, a pencil through the creature's heart six times and and a number of the justices have talked this way they almost mocking. And even yesterday in the oral argument, I mean, what Gorsuch said, right, was I think Lemon has served its purpose and maybe now it's time to put it to rest. Um, there's a real problem here uh, with the jurisprudence. And uh, the problem really, number one, is that it's wrong. Um, one of the basic, most basic ways you can know a test is wrong 
is when you can't apply it to things that are it would strike down that are obviously the founders thought was completely constitutional. So if you have a test like the lemon test and then you get the Marsh case or you get the town of Greece case where you have prayer to open, you know, legislative meetings and you look back and the the founders who passed the First Amendment opened their meeting with prayer. And, you know, they paid a chaplain. And so you know that's not a violation of the Establishment Clause. They never intended for that to be a violation of the Establishment Clause. But yet if you apply the lemon test, it strikes it down. That should be the end of the lemon test because it obviously is not a correct test because it would violate something that you know the founders did not think was unconstitutional. Um, but I, I think the the real problem is, and, and again, Mike got to this a little bit, but is You've got to go – what Lemon has done is taken us away from the Constitution and the words of the Constitution and the purpose of the Establishment Clause into a whole other universe where we're talking about things that are not what the purpose of the Establishment Clause was. We're not asking in these cases usually, are we establishing a religion? We're asking things – I mean they're bringing terms like separation of church and state and uh, is, an, is an observer offended? Um, and all these other issues that really have nothing to do with what the Establishment Clause says. And the offended observer, I think, again, Gorsuch did a good job of pointing out. He did an understanding, but it it's really not just a standing issue. The reason it's a standing issue is because we're, we're even looking at how it affects people. I mean, the idea that we decide whether something is an establishment of religion based upon what some member of the community thinks when they walk by and see a veterans memorial and are offended because there's, you know, religious imagery. Um, I don't know if it, this is easy to understand, but in my view, if you look at the two clauses, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, under the Free Exercise Clause, you have to look to the individual beliefs of people and how it affects them, right? Because Free Exercise is, well, what is your religion? And is your religion being infringed in this case? The Establishment Clause is totally different. It's an objective question. Is this a law respecting an establishment religion? It has, it has no relevance whether somebody's offended or not. The only relevant question is, are you actually doing what the evil that we're after here? And I think everybody, I mean, even the most, uh, a simple person on the street, if you read in the Establishment Clause and you say, what do you think the founders were trying to do? Get, they come to the same conclusions. They didn't want, we didn't want a national church. And we don't want people to have to support, be coerced into supporting a national church or one denomination. And that, that was the purpose of it. So, uh, this idea of bringing in all these other concepts just really makes it more and more difficult, more and more hard to follow. And again, a side thing I'd say as well, even the concept separation of church and state, which of course is, is in a letter by Jefferson over a decade after the Establishment Clause was passed. Um, the concept is a pretty good concept. It's talking about the institutions of the church and the state. Okay, we don't want the church, a church, leading the government. Okay, we're back to a denomination or something specific. We don't want the government leading a church. That's fine, but notice it's never used in that way. It's not the institution. Like in this case, what? where is the institution of the church? It's not involved at all. There's no church involved. Uh, this is, it's, it's attempting to separate religion from government. And of course, if that's your approach, then wherever government is, religion has to flee. And it becomes really a, a tool of hostility. And, and it does so for a couple of reasons. Anyway, the, the other problem with 
the test is it's in hopeless disarray because you can't follow it. You can't come to any consistent conclusions because we're asking things about how some uh, observer will, will take or react uh, to uh, some sort of display. And what happens when you have this type of confusion is if you're a local government official, you're a town or a county or, or and, and you get this uh, coming across your desk, guess what you do? You go, well, I don't know whether it's a violation or not because I don't think anybody knows. And so you just shut it down. And so it creates a hostility to religion by the government that the founders would be appalled by. I think if you ask the founders this test, you brought them here, they would look at you like you're nuts. What we're, you're going to tear down a veterans memorial that's been up a hundred years, uh, because it was, it, because it's a cross. Um, and again, that's not theory. Go back and look at what the founders were doing and what they thought was perfectly fine. You know, uh, go back to in God we trust on the money. There's all these things that, that we've had throughout our country's history that there was no problem with. Uh, so I, you know, I think the worst part of this though, and this came out in the case yesterday and the argument from three different justices is how unfair this is to the lower court judges. Um, when the Supreme Court applies lemon when it wants to, maybe every 25 years, uh, and you're a lower court, well, you've got to apply all these things. And so you can imagine why this is so confusing. And, uh, and so for that reason, really, I, I think this case is actually a great case to end lemon and to get to a, a more rational approach. Um, because the fact that this case with these facts ended up in a, uh, four volume appendix, five years of litigation at the Supreme Court is, shows you how completely off the rails the test has come. This should be a really easy, uh, case. And so it, it's sort of evidence that this thing is totally out of control and it needs to be fixed. And, and I think they, you know, I think they will. I mean, the other alternative of, of, I, I don't think anybody believes they could rule again. I mean, you know, they can, they could shock us all, but, that they would rule against this veterans memorial. Uh, if they do, uh, I just don't see any memorial across the country that's going to be allowed because the facts on this one are so good. I mean, this wasn't even put up by the government. It was put up by mothers who lost their sons in World War One and by the American Legion. It only became to be on, uh, uh, you know, a, a problem decades later when the government took over the land. Uh, and uh, and just the, the American Legion symbol on the cross and all this, if this goes down – what you're saying is crosses have to come down or religious symbols have to come down no matter what the context was. And you got to go into Arlington first for sure. So I, I think um, it would be – I think it would be a religious cleansing that we would see that would follow. I mean every place and every community of the country would now have a scope on it. And if there's religious imagery, uh, you know, you're in trouble. Again, I don't see that, that happening. And so I think the question, as Mike said, is where they're going to go and – I think lemon's clearly unacceptable. So I think going back towards what the founders meant, what the Constitution says, I think is a great thing for the future of our country. <laughs> okay. An unduly restrictive interpretation of the Establishment Clause that prohibits any perceived governmental endorsement of religion threatens religious minorities in many of the same ways that it threatens religious majorities. The naked public square required by such an interpretation is a dreary place that forces religious adherents to artificially segregate their beliefs from their public activities. Judaism, Judaism permeates every aspect of its adherents' lives. We naturally want to incorporate our faith into our public interactions. Being told to keep your faith at home or in your synagogue is as uncomfortable for Jews as it is for Christians. 
Additionally, the endorsement test poses unique challenges to religious minorities. It threatens to erase our religion from public view and to silence the inclusive message that public displays broadcast. For Jews, placing a menorah in a public park is not simply an expression of our faith. Having Maryland Governor Larry Hogan participate in the annual sale of leavened food before Passover is more than an expression of Jewish pride. Those events reaffirm that we belong here, not merely as generic American citizens, but specifically as Jews. They show that not only Jews, but also Judaism is a part of the grand tapestry of American life. In the past, some countries welcomed Jewish people as long as they were willing to jettison their faith and assimilate into the majority culture. But that is not the case in America. We have not faced the cruel dilemma of having to choose between obtaining full citizenship, of obtaining full citizenship and maintaining our faith. Watching a government official light a menorah or hearing a Jewish chaplain pray in Congress reaffirms that Judaism is compatible with or even celebrated by the American ideal. It is these events which act as testaments to Jews' place in American life that the endorsement test threatens to banish from the public square. Unfortunately, despite the general acceptance of Jews, anti-Semitism does exist. Because religious Jews have many visible practices, reinvigorating the endorsement test would give anti-Semites a powerful tool in their quest to exclude us. Recently, a group called Rise Up Ocean County has allegedly tried to prevent Orthodox Jews from moving into their neighborhood. This is not an isolated event. Mawa, New Jersey, recently settled a lawsuit which alleged that it attempted to dissuade Orthodox Jews from moving in. One of the ways that locals tried to stop Jews from moving into Mawa was by preventing us from building an Erev. An Erev is a ceremonial wire strung from public utility poles that encircles Jewish communities. Some Jews, myself included, believe that this enables them to engage in select activities that are otherwise prohibited on the Sabbath. Without an Erev, it's difficult to establish an Orthodox Jewish community. In another case, the borough of Tenafly, New Jersey, argued that the Establishment Clause prohibited it from allowing Jews to build an Erev. It feared that someone might perceive the presence of an Erev on public property as an impermissible endorsement of Judaism. In other words, the borough argued that the First Amendment prohibited it from creating a welcoming environment for Jews. Fortunately, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals rejected that argument. But if the Blanenberg's plaintiffs were to prevail in their case, it might revitalize its pernicious nonsense. I call this nonsense not to be dismissive. Well, maybe be a little bit dismissive. Does anyone actually believe that a reasonable observer would notice a string hanging from a utility pole and immediately exclaim, this town must have established Judaism as its state religion? (laughs) Under the borough's view, the First Amendment does not recognize any middle ground between the two extremes of, one, unconstitutionally privileging Judaism above all other faiths, and two, effectively excluding religious Jews. This cannot possibly be right. There's a lot between those two extreme points. There are other examples of people attempting to abuse the Establishment Clause to prevent Jews from living in peace. For example, in Boca Raton, Florida, plaintiffs argued that the endorsement test prohibited the city from granting Jews the zoning variances necessary to build a new synagogue. The Boca plaintiffs were able to delay construction for more than 12 years before a court dismissed their claim. The Blamenberg plaintiff's draconian interpretation of the First Amendment would unintentionally help anti-Semites write, no Jews allowed, into the Constitution. Relaxed standing requirements, offended observer standing, as we heard about before, are another element of Establishment Clause jurisprudence that is particularly worrisome for Jews. Standing describes the legal doctrine that limits which plaintiffs are eligible to bring a lawsuit. In order to satisfy ordinary standing requirements, a plaintiff must prove that he has been concretely harmed by allegedly illegal conduct. The Supreme Court has held that a person who feels uncomfortable after witnessing offensive behavior has not been sufficiently harmed to obtain legal standing. 
For example, a pacifist cannot sue the United States because he objects to seeing images of the war in Iraq. This is true even if the plaintiff would have had a strong case on the merits. If he doesn't have standing, he cannot sue. Standing doctrine deters individuals from bringing lawsuits to fulfill their personal or political aims. The purpose of American courts is to solve concrete legal disputes, not to serve as a substitute for the political process. Courts certainly are not meant to be used as a tool to harass and frustrate adversaries. However, when it comes to the Establishment Clause, lower courts have so relaxed this doctrine that it can no longer serve a gatekeeping function. Courts have created a standing exception, offended observer standing, that allows any offended observer to challenge a perceived governmental endorsement of religion. This explains why a person who happens to see a menorah in a public park is allowed to bring a lawsuit without demonstrating any kind of harm. Under this doctrine, the most sensitive atheist, the most litigious anti-theist, or the most hateful anti-Semite can easily manufacture a reason to sue. This weakened standing doctrine is a natural outgrowth of the misguided endorsement test at issue in Bladensburg. If the Establishment Clause really prevents the government from taking any steps that seem to endorse religion, the typical standing requirement would be unduly restrictive in those cases. Religious displays almost never inflict tangible harm. How could they? But they can violate an expansive endorsement test. Under the normal standing rules, this would create a situation where many alleged violations of the First Amendment could never be challenged in court. No one would be harmed, so no one would have standing to sue. Perhaps courts should have seen this tension as a reason to reevaluate the endorsement test. Unfortunately, they decided to loosen standing requirements to accommodate their unconstitutional overreach. The negative effects of this doctrine extend beyond the impact of actual lawsuits. Government entities know that they open themselves up to litigation whenever they cooperate with a religious group, especially a religious minority, because our practices are more visible and less likely to fade into the background. It should come as no surprise, then, that some localities are hesitant to accommodate religious practice. The Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty has received phone calls from rabbis whose local governments denied them permission to display menorahs in a public park. Those governments hesitated, at least in part, because they knew that if they cooperated, they might get sued under the Establishment Clause. It did not matter that a lawsuit would be unlikely to prevail. The mere specter of litigation scared them into acquiescence. If the Supreme Court repudiates the endorsement test, it will put an end to these types of shenanigans. The Establishment Clause is intended to prevent religious majorities from having their faith established by the government. It's unfortunate that its words have been twisted and used to harass religious minorities. Hopefully, the Supreme Court will use the Bladensburg case to reaffirm that the First Amendment means what it says. It does not prohibit the government from recognizing the role religion plays in the lives of millions of Americans. So I want to open it up for questions from the audience. Um, we'll have a couple of microphones. But before that, I, I want to pose one question about standing um, that Howard was just talking about. So uh, the lawyer for the humanist group was asked about, you know, could a, could a, a town decide to put up a 40-foot Star of David to memorialize uh, victims of a shooting at a synagogue? And part of her response was no, because you have to ask if that would be too loud. And at that point, Justice Neil Gorsuch jumped in and, and said, you know, on this too loud point, he brought up standing and saying, you know, this is the only area of the law where we allow someone to to bring a lawsuit just based on being offended. Uh, and and Chief Justice Roberts picked up on this and said, so how many complaints do you have to have before, you know, before there is standing here? And uh, none of the other justices really addressed this uh, this issue. Do you think that the others are, are interested in, in going into this area? Well, I, I think, as Howard, I think, indicated, 
The real problem here is not with Article Three and the standing requirements. The real problem here is with how the court has interpreted the Establishment Clause, which basically says, if, for example, the Establishment Clause really did say Congress shall make no law which offends anyone's religious views, then I suppose anybody who was offended would have standing. Uh, the problem is that that's not what the Constitution says, and that's why you should fix the Establishment Clause rather than worrying about Article Three. Now, if they want to come at it through the back door, I guess I'm perfectly happy. I must say, anybody who's ever been involved in these cases, it's just – it's almost humorous what people argue is their injury. The Allegheny County case I was talking about was in Pittsburgh. This guy drives by a, um, you know, public square with a crash, a jumbo candy cane, a Santa's house, and he claims he pulls over to the side of the road and starts vomiting, projectile vomiting, because he's so offended when he saw the crash – my question was, you've lived in Pittsburgh for 40 years. Did you not notice anything going on towards the end of December that indicated that people were celebrating Christmas? So, And Levy Weissman was a rabbi quoting Martin Luther King in the most non-denominational way in Providence, Rhode Island, which the notion that all these Catholic school kids were worried that Jewish people were about to dominate the government in Providence, Rhode Island just strikes me as silly. But I think the way to fix it is not through Article Three injury, is to say the Establishment Clause prevents the majority from silencing minority religious viewpoints. That is true. But it doesn't give minority religious viewpoints the ability to silence majority religious speech by saying this offends me and uh, please remove it. All right. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone. Any questions? This guy back there. Right here. Jason Miller, a lawyer here in D.C. We were talking about the lemon test, and uh, there was references that it might be uh, overturned, yet it seems that the court has been reluctant, at least a majority, to actually go that way. We have, yes, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, who seem like they could go that way, but why have we not gotten a majority yet to overturn the lemon test, and do we think we will this time? Well, whether we will or not, again, it gets me into the predictive business, which I'm reluctant to do. But I certainly think the oppor- excuse me, the opportunity here is quite um, predictable, and I think they might will- finally be willing to do it. They've de facto overruled Lemon constantly. When they come to town of Greece, they say, forget it, Marsh, no, we don't really want to worry about it. Van Orden involving the Ten Commandments, forget the Lemon test. And I think – it was quite interesting that the three people that had most recently served as appellate court judges at the argument yesterday, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Roberts, all said, well, if I got a decision like that out of the Supreme Court, I would basically throw it in the waste paper basket because I don't know what it means. So what you don't want to do is have some standard that nobody believes in because while the court can jettison the lemon test, the lower courts can't. So my hunch, I'd certainly be interested in Kelly Howard's view, is this might well be the circumstance where they finally inter it permanently, not just temporarily. Yeah, I, I feel like um, obviously you look to the five more conservative justices first, and so you look to what what does the chief say? Um, what does this new Kavanaugh and Gorsuch guy say? And they all mentioned how lower court judges are just left with no direction and how really wrong what's going on is. So it makes me think that I just feel like we're at the time where 
the, I don't think the court wants its jurisprudence belittled and to be a mockery, and it's it's become that. I mean, we're we're deciding establishment clause cases based upon how far the baby Jesus is from the Rudolph uh, cutout figure. I mean, you know, it's like with a tape measure. It's it's just gotten really silly, and and people make fun of it, and the justices make fun of it. So I think they know they have to do something about this, and I think they know that what's going on is damaging. I mean, there's not necessarily a case on this every year at the Supreme Court, but as a group who had 447, you know, religious freedoms cases last year, um, there's there's one almost every week on this issue that's happening lower, whether it's a, a city seal, whether it's a, a, you know, a menorah or a creche or something like that, or whether it's the Ten Commandments or whether it's a veterans memorial. And so, I mean, these things are happening everywhere. And uh, and these lower court judges, you know, are being left in a horrible position because nobody knows what the law is. So I, I feel like they know they need to clean this up. And if they do, it will not only be a good thing for the jurisprudence, but it'll stop a lot of the the attacks that are going on that are creating all these problems that I think will be over all the on these displays. And it'll only be a really extreme situation that'll be a, a really valid case if they do so. There are actually two lemon tests. <laughs> when lemon was first decided, it stood for the idea that laws that were passed had to have a secular purpose, could not primarily inhibit or frustrate religion, and couldn't overly entangle religion with the government. Then, s- several years later, Justice O'Connor said, oh, yeah, when it comes to public displays, lemon really means that you can't have endorsement. So I think, unfortunately, the first half of lemon is probably safe at this point. I doubt they're going to go and get rid of that. It's possible that they'll overturn the endorsement test for public displays. I wish they would just entirely uproot lemon and say it doesn't apply anywhere. I just don't think the first half of it is at issue, really. And there's a chance they'll get rid of the endorsement test. Yeah, I think we're talking about when I mean I'll let Mike speak for himself. When we say lemon, you know, would be disregarded. I think it's in public display context um, uh, that we're talking about, or symbolic speech. That's certainly true, and it's a very simple opinion to write, which is just what we said in town of Greece about legislative peer is real speech, and we're just applying it to symbolic speech. So in a way, it would be the simplest move for the court to do, and then say we're no longer applying religion. Now, I must say in the other context, I don't think that Lemon plays much of a role anymore because the other contexts are accommodating religion, and the courts made it quite clear that you can lift restrictions on churches, et cetera, without violating lemon. And the other one is funding of religious groups. And there, I think the clear rule at this point is, as long as it's non-discriminatory funding, uh, a generally applicable program, you need not exclude religious groups. What you couldn't do is have a tax that only applies to religious ministers. That's fair. But, but So I don't really think Lemon has much purchase in these other contexts anymore outside the symbolic speech context, so it would be a relatively simple move. I hope they're intellectually honest enough when they at- apply town to Greece, they'd also say, by the way, this means forget about Lemon. Uh, and the, the one remaining thing, I suppose, to get back to Howard's point is they have this bizarre uh, decision called Wallace v. Joffrey, right, where they said, look, we'd like everybody to take a moment of silence in school. And that doesn't inhibit anybody's religious liberty. Indeed, of course, it enhances it. They weren't telling you what to do during the moment of silence, and it doesn't involve speech because, you know, it's silent. Um, nonetheless, the court said, but the people who passed it were really devout Christians, so strike it down. Because they were hoping in their hearts that maybe people would pray uh, in a particular way. 
So if they keep that religious purpose prong of lemon, then it will continue to do mischief in that area, but maybe they'll recognize that and just inter the whole thing together. Other questions? If you look at the $1 bill, in the back of the, in the seal of the government, on the top is the Star of David, and on the bottom is uh, arranged as a menorah. On the top is the ter- 13 stars is arranged to show a star of David. How do you, uh, if it goes to the court, how do you uh, think the court is going to decide on this issue? Well, if they adopt our test, that, that would be fine because I may not be Jewish, but looking at a star of David doesn't in any way. Right. Well, in the dollar bill, as you know, it also says. In, well, actually, there are faith-specific things on the back of the dollar bill. The eye looking over the pyramid—that's that's a Christian image as well. So I, I think we should get out of the business of saying that. Uh, um, uh, acknowledgments of religion on public documents are somehow problematical. Again, I will carve out a narrow exception if the only explanation for it is to get people to convert to Judaism or Christianity, then then you might have an argument. But these relatively insignificant... It's quite interesting, actually. I, in preparing for this case, I found out a couple of things I didn't know. I knew about the Great Seal, which is on the dollar bill. What I didn't know was the initial Great Seal which Jefferson, who was, you know, usually viewed as very reluctant uh, to endorse religion, and Franklin had come up with in uh, 1776 was actually Moses crossing the Red Sea, a classic sectarian image which didn't seem to bother anybody because just like sectarian prayer, start Congress and things like that, people understood the fact that you're accommodating and acknowledging and using religious speech is quite different as Kelly said, than establishing a particular church that other people need to swear allegiance to. So that wouldn't really bother me, your example. I think we have time for one more question. David Sobelson, Washington, D.C. I'd like to ask the panel, under your tests, would it be constitutional for a state to have a cross on the signs leading into the state in the, on the roads that say, welcome to this state? And if not, who would have standing to object to that? This is the conversation we had yesterday when I was talking about proselytizing. The, the, the opinion that we wanted to become the law uh, was the Allegheny dissent that I've referred to a number of times. And in that opinion, Justice Kennedy said, listen, generally symb- symbols like crushes don't don't affect anybody. He goes, now, there may be a narrow exception if you had a permanent cross on top of City Hall, because that would be difficult to explain as other than an effort to aggressively proselytize in favor of one religion. Your example would come pretty close to that. The, the way I would look at it is, if you had crosses in front of every DMV or, or court or something in a particular community, then it seems to me you're pretty much telling everybody your access to impartial treatment is going to be affected by your religious viewpoint. And while it's not de jure coercion, it's certainly de facto coercion. And it strikes me a lot as 
a functional equivalent of an establishment. If I said Catholicism was the law of the state that you're hypothesizing, it doesn't seem to me much different than saying we're going to have a cross when you come into the state. That said, you know, you need to be context-specific and careful. If it was Las Cruces, New Mexico, the cross, then that really wouldn't bother you, would it? Um, and you need to understand the historical context and the purpose. It, this context was so simple. A cross is just a universal symbol commemorating fallen heroes, right? And uh, yes, it, it is using a religious symbol to accomplish a legitimate non-proselytizing purpose. Just like sectarian prayer is accomplishing the non-sectarian purpose of solemnizing the occasion, this is memorializing our debt. So as long as, the other point I made yesterday and I'd like to repeat is, all of these hypotheticals, every one of these hypotheticals doesn't exist in the real world. They couldn't come up with one cross, one Ten Commandments, one Christmas crash that would possibly cross this line. So they came up with inventive hypotheticals like yours, which don't exist in the real world. But as Kelly can vividly attest, the lemon test has real-world consequences every day on commonplaces, uses of religious imagery. So the real argument is, let's worry about these hypotheticals which have never existed in the real world and I very seriously doubt are going to start existing in 2020 uh, because, but continue this regime that affects American citizens in their daily lives every day. We can deal with these far out hypotheticals if and when they ever arise, which they never will, but let's get the rules straight for the, the real world uh, situations in which this does arise. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, well, again, I, I'm going to give the same answer I gave before. If the test is uh, 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 not offense to the religion, then then nobody – instead of saying they don't have standing, you dismiss it under 12b-6, say they don't have a meritorious claim. And I would just add that I don't think it would violate the First Amendment if there were crosses on every sign into or out of the town. I don't believe in a cross, but I don't mind seeing one. And I recognize that my neighbors and my friends, you know, this is a very important symbol to them. And merely the fact that my friends like to see this symbol does not in any way pressure me or coerce me into joining their faith. It has no effect on me whatsoever. It certainly doesn't make me feel alienated or separate if I'm also allowed to have my symbols in, on public display. And as to standing, I don't think anyone would have standing. If it's not causing any harm, then there's no standing. A person who, if enough people in the town, in fact, did not like the symbol, they could go through the political process and they could try and vote and change it. And if a person really is so personally sensitive as a personal thing that they can't stand to see a symbol that's important to their friends and neighbors, first, I think it probably speaks somewhat poorly of that person. And second, they could move. <laughs> let me, let, you know, we, we talk about, again, the, the high, one of the funny things in all the moots, we did a number of moots, is they hit you with all these hypotheticals. And it became clear very quickly that all the hypotheticals to try to push against sort of the coercion test were crazy stuff that never has happened in the history of the country. And uh, the stuff that's really happening, again, we talked about creches and, and menorahs and all that, but I mean, I'll give you one more that you've heard of a lot and that people probably don't even think of how this case could affect that case. But it's the Coach Kennedy case, right? The coach who was fired because after a football game, by himself in the middle of the field when everybody's kind of talking and everything else, he went to a knee for 20 seconds to say a silent prayer. The Ninth Circuit ruling was that coaches are not allowed to pray in public if anyone can see them because that would be an endorsement because they're a coach and they're wearing 
regalia, et cetera. Well, if you again, if we change the approach here, people like Coach Kennedy aren't getting fired. Uh, so this does have real world consequences. Lemon and the endorsement test and all this is a real problem, and it really does affect people's lives in a negative way, and in a way that that is not what the Constitution is after. Well, with that, we've run out of time. Please join me in thanking our panelists. Good job. Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Great job. Thanks. Good job. Good job. Yeah. I I can't speak like with that. I.